Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active word of God, his two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, May 27th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 4 to 17. Judah may claim wisdom, but they show their true foolishness by continuing to reject the word of the Lord. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us a regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippeck. Pastor Philippeck serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippeck, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks, Pastor Apple. Good to be with you, and greetings to our listeners in the name of our crucified, risen, reigning, ascended Lord, who was, who is, and who is to come. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Pastor Philippeck, we are in Jeremiah chapter 8 today. What do we need to know about the prophet, his ministry, this book as a whole that will help us into the verses we've got for today? Sure. So there's a lot here, and I'm certain, you know, through all this time in Jeremiah that we've already spent, we've rehearsed a lot of it, but it's good to rehearse it again because a lot of these things that are going to be said today to us in chapter 8 appear in chapter 7, 6, 2. There was a lot of reiteration. So just a reminder then that Jeremiah began prophesying the word of the Lord during King Josiah's 13th year in office. He was just about eight years old when he took office, Josiah was, but around 20 years old, Jeremiah takes to being a prophet because the Lord appears to him and puts his his word in his mouth. Uh, So 629 BC is what we're talking about here. About 20 years old, uh, Jeremiah is, and his ministry lasts about 40 years. And it's not a pleasant 40 years by any means. In fact, Jeremiah, a lot of what Jeremiah endures as a prophet is a foreshadowing and a parallel of what God's people, Judah, the Southern kingdom will be enduring, you know, from a burying of a loincloth to digging it up and it's dirty and ripped and building it again, all these images throughout the whole thing. And yet this is the, the same thing that Jeremiah experiences, this destruction, this tearing down, this rejection, uh, only to eventually build up, plant all of those verbs that we got nicely in, in Jeremiah 1, verse 10. So Jeremiah, though, he then also witnesses a whole lot of things, not only in his own ministry, but um, just during that time through other nations. He's seen Assyria uh, march in and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, 722, right? We, we have this whole thing here of the ten tribes, Judah witnessing the destruction of the ten tribes, their brothers um, there into the north, and it doesn't cause them any sort of repentance, any option of reflection. They sort of reject that and harden their heart, and they continue in their idolatry. Well, they go through the rise of Babylon after the northern kingdom. You got the, the false and broken promises of Egypt to help Judah and uh, be there and help us rebel against Babylon. You know, this is Zedekiah down the road that he'll live through and all of the different things like that, until the destruction and demise of Judah in the southern kingdom. An unthinkable, an unfathomable thing by many people. The the, the capital city, Jerusalem, with the temple, God's presence, could ever be destroyed. And yet it is. By the hands of the Babylonians, the Lord executes his justice and the wages of our sin being death. He leaves his temple, he allows the city and the temple to be destroyed, and them to be exiled. During Jeremiah's ministry, this this happens in just 40 short years of prophecy. And it's because during this tumultuous time and sin-ridden time of the southern kingdom, they're, they're being steeped in their own idolatry, that, that all of this happens. I mean, back in Deuteronomy 6, when they're about to enter the promised land, God tells them that as long as they obey his commandments and worship and serve him alone, he will dwell with them in their midst. Unlike they have seen since the Garden of Eden, he will be their God. They will be his people, and it will be a land then flowing of milk and honey because his presence will be there among them. Well, Jeremiah's day, anything but that has happened. I mean, we have lived through the sins of Manasseh already and just really perverse idolatry and turning to every other God but the one true God. And so Israel has had a history here, uh, even 
back before Manasseh, but especially intensifying in Manasseh to be steeped in idolatry. They worship one of the primary gods. They have Dagon and Molech that they've gone back to, but one of the primary ones that we keep seeing now in Jeremiah is um, in, in Hebrew, Baal, in English, Baal. Baal is sort of the son of El. El is the chief god in the Canaanite Mesopotamian area. And Baal himself is sort of attributed for three different things that he's known for. He's a god of uh, sun. He's a god of storm. He's a god as well of, if you will, fertility. It kind of all wraps itself up in him. So hence, he's responsible really for, for the land producing good crops so that people have a vibrant livelihood, farming, economics, booming, all of these things. Well, in order to produce crops, of course, you need not only sunshine, but you need that good nitrogen-rich rain. And in order for it to rain, well, the Canaanites saw this as a necessity for worshiping Baal. Baal worship consisted of being a god of of sun and storm and fertility, consists then of of two unspeakable things. Uh, The first is mentioned in Deuteronomy 12 and 18. Uh, during intense times of crisis, people are to bring their firstborn and sacrifice their firstborn, put them on the fire and burn them. And the second whore is mentioned in you know First Kings fourteen, and this is the men of the Canaanite area, and which now Israel occupies the southern kingdom they too participate in this then the men of the region in, engage in adultery through temple prostitution the canaanites they believe that you could influence the god's action in this case baal and his mistress ashtoreth the goddess of the sea by simply going up to the high places for baal worship and baal worship literally involved sleeping with temple prostitutes you know that sexual intercourse and when baal and ashtoreth would see these things, this action would um, cause in them a desire to embark on their own sexual union, it was believed, and through that union produce fertility, which in this case meant rain and good crops and harvests and livelihood. This then is why Jeremiah, you know, back in 2, back in 6, in 7, later on in 16, in, in 23, we get these continued repeated phrases of, being compared to a broken marriage, an adulterous marriage. This is one of the the themes that you see in Jeremiah, that Israel and their relationship to God is compared to a broken, adulterous marriage. It is is why you have encountered so many times when speaking of Israel's sins, both, yes, northern kingdom, but now especially in the southern kingdom, they prostituted themselves to other gods or they hoard after other gods. Because this is what this is what they are doing. They are they are chasing after Baal and not being faithful to their bridegroom, God, and so the the bride is being unfaithful and, and being adulterous and breaking this relationship. It, it is it is why you have very detestable and wicked adulterous idolatrous practices going on in the Southern Kingdom during Jeremiah's day, and it results in a kindling of God's anger and wrath. You know, we're 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 by the time we're at, to the end of Jeremiah, we're to the point of no return. Yeah. Uh, there's an execution that is coming, despite what Israel in the southern kingdom might do. There is a point of no return, and God's divine judgment is going to be executed on them through the hands of Babylon. And many of them will be killed. Many of them will be captured. And those who are not killed but are captured will be taken to Babylon. Seventy years of slavery. And so the first 25 chapters of Jeremiah is really doom and gloom. Uh, as, as we've been reading through this, a lot of law, Jeremiah preaches death to the southern kingdom. Indeed, the whole world, the whole nations, because of the sin that lurks in our heart, because that old covenant, that sin that lurks in our heart, something new has got to happen. A, a new heart has to be. And that's, that's a theme later on as we go forward in the book of Jeremiah 25 and, and following this new heart that God's going to create in us and, and the destruction of the old and the building up of a new place. This, in fact, is the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, as is told by our Lord, uh, that, that Jeremiah 1.10, of those, those six things that are there, you know, you've got a, a four verbs of destruction. You've got the whole plucking and tearing and destroying and overthrowing. Those are the four verbs used to describe Jeremiah's ministry. A lot of doom and gloom, a lot of trying to 
show Israel their sin, that in repentance they may turn to the Lord and actually live. Uh, so Jeremiah is is actually largely responsible for proclaiming this message of law. And only only then, after that is proclaimed, Israel sees their sin, confesses that sin, which for them it will be, and it will be literally in slavery in the waters of Babylon as they weep and mourn and, and realize the fullness of what they had done. Only then will God rebuild, and only then will God replant and restore God's people, and indeed the, the whole world, inevitably, in Jesus Christ. So that death and destruction of the first 25 chapters, and then 26 through 52, are the rebuilding and restoration, which means that our little section of text today finds ourselves, Jeremiah 8, in that pre-Babylonian captivity, pre-destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, pre-King Zedekiah, pre-King pre Jehoiakim and all the controversy with Egypt. Uh, it's actually during the reign of Josiah, toward the end of his reign, where, where people are actually just a little glimmer that they're, they're beginning to stop their idolatrous worship. But we'll see that it, it won't be. I mean, Josiah will die at the hands of Egypt, and it'll only get worse. And, and it, it is the point of no return. The wages of sin is death, and the divine judgment is coming. So Jeremiah chapter 8, like 7 before it, which spoke of how their, you know, their carcasses would be food for the birds and wild animals. That's how 7 ended for us. So Jeremiah 8 is, is a hard word of law and judgment. Let's let's take a look then, and I think we we may have a glimmer or two of mercy, but as you said, a lot of a lot of law yet again from Jeremiah as we're pushing forward to that section of, of rebuilding that is coming. We're in Jeremiah 8, beginning at verse 4. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, when men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, What have I done? Everyone turns to his own course, like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. How can you say, We are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors. Because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Why do we sit still? Gather together. Let us go into the fortified cities and perish there. For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish, and has given us poisoned water to drink, because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror the snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. At the sound of the neighing of their stallions, the whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. For behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. That's our text for today, Jeremiah 8, verses 4 to 17. Lots of law, Pastor Philippeck. Lots of yeah. lots of law. A lot of a lot of hard words here yet again from Jeremiah. So verses four through about seven, some familiar language. The the Lord is given giving Jeremiah words to preach about why these people have just continued to fall into idolatry and we, we get a picture of their hard heartedness again. Take us into the this opening section. 
Sure. So Jeremiah 8 today, what we have as a section of it presents two very important things. One is the stiff-neckedness and hard-heartedness of the people. That's what we're talking about in the first part of that four uh, through seven. And then the lying false prophets in the second part. So it's interesting how the text actually describes exactly what's going on with the people of Israel and their stiff-neckedness and their hard-heartedness. It starts as a simple form of a question that's kind of rhetorically like, duh, of course. So it starts with, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, when men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, do they not return? And so you're left thinking, of course, if if you trip, if you stumble, what do you do? You stand up. That's just what you do. And, you know, if you, if you turn away and go the wrong way, what do you do? You turn around. That seems straightforward. It seems almost natural, and yet it's not natural. And we'll see um, why with the stiff-neckedness and the hard-heartedness and the sin that dwells in man, it's really not in our nature. Uh, but it should be just obvious, right? When you fall, you get up. But that's not what, that is not what the southern kingdom is doing. They are not turning back to God, and they have stumbled, but they are not getting up. In fact, they're content just laying there. They're content going the wrong direction. They're so content, they're described as a horse plunging headlong into battle. Now, if you've ever you know, seeing these things in movies and whatnot, the horse, or you can just visualize this, a horse just plunging headlong into battle, what's going to happen to the horse? Like, it's not even thinking about what's going on, it's just running. And when you run, and you're not thinking about this in battle, you're going to get your head cut off. You're going to get somebody stabbing you, something like that. I mean, it it is grotesque. But they are so stubborn on going into battle, they're willing to go headlong, plunge into it like nothing. Well, this, they're so steadfast and stubborn in their sin. They just keep doing it over and over and over again. And what should have served as a warning to them by Ezekiel, by Isaiah, by even the destruction of the, their brothers to the north, what should have served as a wake-up call has in fact not done a thing for them. And this is why we're moving to the point of no return, because no matter what is, what is given on, they have hardened their hearts and they are... Well, quite literally, hell-bent on doing what they want to do. They are bent on getting the divine destruction and judgment of God in this. And that force is used just like that. You know, the same thing, perpetual backsliding. But, but they hold fast to their deceit. They don't repent. They don't turn. They refuse, actually, to return. Uh, they don't listen. And there's no one who relents saying, what have, I, what have I done? You know, sometimes when when we commit a sin, by the grace of God, we say, boy, that was kind of dumb. I shouldn't have do, done that. Even sometimes by the sheer hard fact that the law is built into creation, and then if I go against it, eh, there's a consequence. Sometimes that just serves as a wake-up call to me, but it's not doing that for the people of God. They're, they are sent forth and stubborn in their sin, um, even to the point where we compare this section to, to birds. The stork in the heavens knows her times. The turtle dove, swallow, crane, keep the time of their coming. So birds, by their God-given instinct, are more responsive to God and his word than the southern kingdom. In essence, you might say it like this. Even dumb animals know better than you, Southern Kingdom. They can read signs. They can look around and they can know just surely by what is built into creation, the law of God there. It's time to fly south. It's time to go north. It's time to build a nest. But Israel can't look at all these events and these prophets being sent to them. And see just that. It is time to repent. Well, they see the signs around them and they don't care. They want to do whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it, however they want to do it. And now, in truth, we have seen this throughout Israel's history. You have the golden calf at Exodus 32, Dagon and Molech and all the Philistine things going on there when we talk about Samson and David and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it is intensified. 
when we've gotten to Manasseh, and we really don't have a lot of good kings left here. Josiah's it. And with the rest of them, and maybe maybe somewhat pointedly, Zedekiah, Yahweh is our righteousness, God is our righteousness, that's what it, that term means, the last king. It's actually the opposite that he does. You know, his name is God is our righteousness, but but he turns the hearts of of everybody to trust in Egypt and to fight against the Babylonians. Where when Jeremiah say, is saying, "Look, you brought these sins upon yourself. It's time to submit to God's judgment. It's time to endure, um, to be torn down, to be overthrown." And, and God will, in fact, God will, in fact, as we'll see, rebuild and restore. It's not too much different in Israel's history, but it is more intense. It's not too much in our modern day history. Many of us who are Christians know the Ten Commandments, but in knowing them, how often do we fail to walk in the ways of our Lord? How often do we sin in thought, word, and deed by nature, sinful and unclean, not loving God and not loving our neighbor as ourselves, practicing all sorts of wickedness? Uh, you can pick any single commandment, but the fact of the matter is our, our lives are often measured by what pleases us and what makes us happy rather than what pleases God and walking in the ways of our Lord. It, it continues to amaze me how quite applicable Jeremiah is in our day. And, and as you're, you know, you're talking there about how this still happens among us as Christians, I think it, it really highlights for us the importance of repentance in all of this, you know, for all of the law that Jeremiah has preached, he certainly has talked about what you might call immorality sins uh, against the second table of the law, those sins against our neighbor, the ones that tend to make the news, but he's, he's really spent a lot more time preaching about idolatry, the sin against the first commandment. And then on top of that, this unwillingness of the people to repent you know, I mean, for all of their idolatry and immorality, they refuse to repent. And that's what's added sin upon sin. And and hopefully for us as Christians, that's what that's that's where we are different, that that we do have that two by four of the law smack us over the head sometimes because it's needed more often than we care to admit. And and the Lord, by his mercy, actually works through that to bring us to repentance so that we don't fall into this hard-heartedness where we, you know, the birds know better than we do. It's 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 just a it's a very sorry picture that Jeremiah paints. God grant us today that that we would not fall into it. Absolutely. There's there's only two ways to go. There's the way of repentance and faith uh, or the way there's the way of turning your back on God and walking away. And I think this is a big part of, even though I, I don't have the, these texts, so I can't fully delve into this. This is a big part of Jeremiah's prophecy with David and the righteous branch. I mean, David is no stranger to sin. We call David a man after the Lord's heart because scripture does. But when you look at why David's a man after the Lord's heart, it's after all of his idolatry and adultery with Bathsheba. I'll just take that one instance from, from Samuel, you know, second Samuel 12 here and dealing with all of those sorts of things. When Nathan comes to David and tells him the story of, you know, the man who has all these new lambs and all this, and this man takes from David gets enraged that he takes the travelers and, and this man will restore fourfold, you know, and so what ends up happening then is David, Nathan says, you are that man. Behold, here's what the Lord says. And he recounts that. And David says, I have sinned against the Lord. That's repentance. And out of that, we get Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart. And so you'll see a lot of the Davidic imagery coming out of this, that Bathsheba narrative weave its way throughout Jeremiah as well. And David and the, David's throne and the establishment of Judah and the building of, of a new covenant and kingdom uh, that is in the line of, of David is and that righteous branch that shall come up. Just like he had in Isaiah, but it also comes up in in Jeremiah. It, it's not a coincidence. Yeah, I mean, that, that account of, of David there that's in Second Samuel, I think is is maybe not a bad thing to, to think about a little bit more when you when you look at how David progresses in that, that account, starting from, from when he commits adultery all the way through where Nathan the prophet can, confronts him. There's several moments in there where, you know, David should have had that moment, as Jeremiah puts it, and said, what have I done? 
you know, I mean, so yeah. he, I mean, he, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. That's probably right, right after that. What have I done? Nope. Doesn't happen then. The child is, is conceived. What have I done? Nope. Doesn't happen there either. I mean, he calls, calls Uriah home and Uriah refuses to go home to, to his wife while the army is out at, at war and, and proves himself to be more righteous than David. What have I done? Nope. Doesn't happen there either. I mean, over and over, you know, he kills, kills Uriah in battle. What have I done over and over again? David misses that, that what have I done? Until the prophet Nathan comes and confronts him with that beautiful parable and and just, I mean, the word of the Lord convicts David at that moment. And I, I'm convinced that that's one of the greatest miracles in the Old Testament is that the the lowly prophet Nathan, through the word of God, had the the king David, you know, the, the mightiest man in the country, he repented at the word of the Lord. That's one of the greatest miracles in the Old Testament, I'm, I'm convinced. And and it's like, you know, Jeremiah here is standing in the line of that that includes the prophet Nathan, telling these people here in Judah, you know, look at all these moments. You've not said, what have I done? And this is kind of that last ditch effort because judgment is coming. And Jeremiah is saying, repent now, now is the time. Repent now. Quit, you know, I mean, stop, stop this backsliding. Stop this refusal to admit who you are and what you've done and return to the Lord. Absolutely. That is the call of Jeremiah and Nathan. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's, it's something, you know, here in the Southern kingdom in particular. And then of course, as, as you said, that's where Jeremiah is going to direct the people for their hope is that righteous branch from that line of David, one greater than David, David's son, yet David's Lord, Jesus Christ. That's the, the promise that Jeremiah will hold out for the people as the book continues. We're going to take our, our break here, Pastor Philip. We're looking at Jeremiah chapter eight this morning with Pastor Philip. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, May 27th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 4 through 17 with Pastor Adam Philippek. He's the pastor at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North, Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek, prior to the break, we're looking at verses 4 through 7. And there's a, a spot in there that contains a hint of promise. And I think I, I might have missed it. I might have skipped over it if you hadn't pointed it out to me. It's at the very end or toward the end of verse 7 where the Lord says, my people know not the rules of the Lord. And I'm, I'm here focusing on, well, again, you know, Israel, Judah, they don't know God's rules. But but you want to talk specifically, the Lord still calls Judah my people. Why is that important? Yeah, I think this is very important to see. Um, my people, even in the midst of, of sin, this this really is somewhat heart-wrenching and softening to how you see to how you see God. He's still going to execute justice, the wages of sin is death. But you can see you can see here just to quote something more familiar to us, God does not desire the death of a sinner. So you see this lament and even in the face of the sin he calls Israel my people. He doesn't say those guys, you, you know, it, it's a tender that even though you sin, there's still hope in, in being my people, even though you have walked away from me, even though you have whored after other gods, I still call you my people. So we're going to see a little bit of that because the, the, my people, I guess, let me start with saying this, what I think we need to come to grips with in Jeremiah, perhaps now more than ever, because we've been hitting the law, is that this is this is the frustration and the weeping and lament of God. You're going to get this later on as you study 8. You're going to get some more in, nine, in verse 19 and following. But uh, you really have this almost equivocal, I, I would just put it in, in the context of Matthew 23, because I think we know the Matthew 23, 37 text better, of oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that, that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. 
how often I would have gathered your children together as hand gathers her, her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You know, you see the heart of God and the desire that God desires all people to be saved. And it has been this way since Adam and his wife stretched out their hand and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, the woman stretched out her hand, gave some to her husband who was with her. The eyes of both of them were open. They were naked. They hid. And God holds Adam accountable. What is this you have done? And, and you see Adam throw his wife sort of under the divine um, judgment uh, bus of, you know, God's wrath and say, oh, it's your problem. It's for you, the woman that you put me here with. But yet in the midst of that, having become friends of Satan and enemies of God, which is a startling thought in and of itself. Remember the Genesis text. They used to walk with God in the cool of the day. But when God makes that promise in Genesis 3.15, as he's dishing out punishments, and he gets, you know, first of all to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity is a particular word, and for enmity to be used, there must mean that the opposite of enmity exists. So we have a shift there, right? We go from being at um, maybe perhaps at enmity with Satan and friends of God to um, friends of Satan and, 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 and enmity with God. So God's going to cause this division, and he has promised this long ago, that there will be a promised child who's going to crush the head of the serpent and give them back a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. But the promised land ha- is flowing with milk and honey because it is there that God shall be their God and they shall be his people. So even though this is going on, he still calls them my people. And the fact that my people exist there means that there's still that long awaited promise that stretches back to David through all the way back to Abraham, through Adam in the garden, that God is still going to be our God and we, his people, despite our sin and despite the divine judgment on sin. So that, that my people is a glimmer of hope that, that there is still some, as Jer- in Jeremiah terms of chapter 1, verse 10, there is still some hope of being rebuilt and restored and renewed and, and cleansed. All of these all of these things come into, into play. So there's that, you'll see that later on going even more as we go up to chapter 23, but, but my people is that, that wonderful hope there of, of God still calling and still having a promise despite his people's sins. Yeah, I mean, with that my people language, the flip side of that is that he would be their God. You know, that's how he talked in, in Exodus, that that you are my people, I am your God. And and his he's still, he's still calling calling them my people. And so for those who have the ears to hear, he's calling them back to to say so that they would say to him, you are my God, you know, that that dual the back and forth. That's that's a part of that. And so it's it's there again, that glimmer of hope that that Jeremiah will begin to, to shine more brightly as the as the book continues. As, as we continue in our text for today, Pastor Philip, now in, in verses eight and nine, this matter of wisdom and, and what it means to be wise starts to take center stage and it begins to transition us more into the talk about the lying, the false prophets, which I, I think was there a little bit in the beginning of our text where Jeremiah says they hold fast to deceit. It's He's coming mm-hmm. back to that thought and starting to, to dwell on that a little more. And he, he gets that going by this this matter of what is wisdom. They're claiming wisdom. Jeremiah says, no, you're not. What's going on here? Yeah, you see, you see this actually in parts of two, in parts of six, and you see this later on when we when you get into basically 20 through 30 as you go through Jeremiah. But you have a people who are living in the capital of capitals, Jerusalem. And why is it the capital of capitals? Well, the temple is there. And their dwelling in the temple is the ark, the God enthroned in the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant, behind that veil at 45 of curtain, right? High priest entering once a year. So, so God is dwelling in my midst, albeit I still want to note here that he's not accessible totally by the people. Only by a high priest once a year blood sacrifice, sprinkle it on the people, sprinkle it on them, forgive the sins. So so there's still a degree of separation that's going to need to be dealt with by God, and this will get to Jeremiah's restoration and the righteous branch language later on. But here right now, they're complacent. They're complacent that how could, we've got the temple, we've got God's presence, we kind of know what his law says, and so, yeah, we're good. We're good. And it would kind of be like, like um, you should not commit adultery. Right? We got the sixth commandment here, and it's like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I shouldn't commit. Oh, I've been, I've been, I've been, 
I've been bad. I, I know it. And, um, oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I understand this completely. And then they, they'd have their, their little temple service cause it's kind of coexisting with all the, the Baal worship right now. You've got all these things kind of dualness. So yep. Yep. And just to kind of play with this a little bit. Yeah. I, I know I, I, I said I'm rotten, but your, your, your presence are here. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm still okay. And, and again, you just kind of get this little false repentance here in this false like, yeah, I know, but, but, but you forgive me. So it's okay. But, but it's, it's good. You're here. And it's like, at some point God actually expects you. I mean, this is, this is the point that even in, even in our large catechism, the preface to the, the second article of the creed talks about the fact that this second article exists so that we actually can live in the 10 commandments, fulfill what we are given to do in the 10 commandments. So at some point, God actually does expect you, right, to, to live according to his word. Now, that's not to say that you'll do it perfectly, but that struggle, that wretched man that I am who will save me from that body of death, this repentance and faith, this life that you live. But part of that repentance and faith is actually to turn from your sin, see it, confess it, receive it, and then, you know, fight against that, the fruits of repentance. But that's not what they're doing. They're not doing that at all. In fact, they, they think they know the law, and they they think they know what's going on. They think that because God's in their midst, they're okay. But they really don't know what the word of the Lord says. They truly don't know. They are wise in their own eyes because they're bent on doing what they do and they're refusing to listen to what Jeremiah has to say. So the words of of Proverbs, Solomon's wisdom here, (laughs) a king right in this whole line where Rehoboam, uh, the sun comes from and how this all starts to transpire down the line to the southern kingdom of Judah. Solomon, Proverbs 3, be not wise in your own eyes. You want to know what being wise is? It's not thinking that you know. It's not doing whatever you want to do. It's not your man-made reliance on your own works and your own understanding. It's a fear of the Lord. It's recognizing that there, God is God. He's holy, who's merciful, who's just, who speaks his words, and that word is truth. He is truth. So fear that. Recognize who he is and what he says. And live under him in repentance and faith. Turn away from your evil. Proverbs 3, 7, right? Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from your evil. See, there's that turn away from your evil again. Well, Proverbs 9, verse 10 says a similar thing. Solomon, again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. If you prefer a New Testament passage that we're very familiar with. You know, we talked about repentance in our day and how that works. I'll go straight to the service, the divine service. One of our, one of our two of our services, rather. Uh, there's, there's more, but two prominent ones, perhaps, that our hearers might use. Divine service one out of the LSB, divine service two out of the LSB. Uh, this, this whole First John 1 quotation. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We are liars, and that's what Israel is doing. They are, they are lying to themselves and their prophets have made them just as their prophets and scribes have made them just even more the liars because they don't think they've really done anything too wrong. But that verse continues saying, if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So for Israel to be wise in this instance means for them to heed Jeremiah's call. The Lord has put his call in Jeremiah's mouth, not in those prophets' mouths, especially that lying Hananiah that we get in 23. No, not their mouths, but rather Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is saying, we're going to be destroyed here because of our sins of idolatry. And those who actually confess their sins and cling to the mercy of God, First John tells us, God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Paul says this this way, the word of the Lord himself, right? So, so recognizing that I'm a sinner who deserves death, the wages of my sin is death, that is, that is absolute foolishness to the world. The world preaches a, a word contrary. You know, you're smart enough, you're strong enough, and people like you, and if you give enough time, we can figure out anything, we can beat anything. That's the word of our world. But actually, Scripture talks about the wisdom of man, that wisdom being, being actually more foolish than the foolishness of God. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross, that I'm a sinner and that I need someone to save me, I need someone to help me, I need someone to suffer, bleed, and die for me. That's folly to those who are perishing, to those who are dead, but to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the certain. I will thought, where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know him through its wisdom. Like we can't just know God in our wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of we preach this, this God in human flesh, the Lord of heaven and earth, come to take your sin upon himself to give his life unto death, to suffer hell on the cross that you might not suffer hell for eternity. Yeah, it pleased God through the folly of what you preach to save those who believe. Jews, they want signs. Greeks, they seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. But for those who are being called, those who are being saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But Israel doesn't see this right now. Israel doesn't see that they have sin. Israel refuses to recognize their sin and repent. They are not repentant, and part of the problem is their hard heart, their own sinful flesh, their own being hell-bent on their own ways. But the other part is mentioned here in this part of the, the false prophets and the scribes who lie and the ones who, who um, I love that, heal the wound of my people. And how do they heal it? lightly peace peace uh, when there is no peace so you have two opposing messages and one of the messages beyond their own sinful heart that is being preached is jeremiah's you have sinned against the lord you are going to be destroyed god is going to destroy this city and this temple you are going into slavery for 70 years you are going to suffer you are going to mourn at the hands of babylon you might as well accept this proclamation now receive it and believe it by the grace of god this is what is going to happen and by the grace of god that will lead to your repentance and 70 years from now there will be a branch that comes out of that dead lifeless shoot or jeremiah also talks about you know ezekiel's the bone stuff you know he also has bone imagery here you know those lifeless bones he will breathe life back into again you will be restored but not before you go to Babylon and not before you go through all of this suffering and slavery. Only when you are in the midst of that judgment, crying out in repentance and faith, only then will the Lord deliver you and raise up that righteous branch and restore you and replant you and rebuild the city and all of those, all of those things. But that's Jeremiah's message. They don't like that message. They don't like that message at all. Uh, in fact, they chase Jeremiah through the kingdom and try to put him to death. They, they, Jeremiah is actually put in prison, um, Zedekiah and things like that. Also, uh, Egypt, you know, he, he's offered because he's in wanting Israel to submit to Babylon. You know, Babylon wants to like make him their right hand man. Like, oh, cool. Yeah, you're helping us. So you can have a place of honor here in Babylon, Jeremiah, but he refuses. He stays with, uh, with the people and, and endures suffering. And so much so that he's later sent to Egypt and, and dies in Egypt. But um, that's Jeremiah's message. It's just one of, it's one of repentance and recognition and turning and, uh, and being restored. Mm-hmm. But uh, the prophets, uh, the other prophets, uh, you know, Hananiah and them are saying, oh, yeah, no, you're enduring the worst right now. It, you know, yeah, it's, it's bad, and you've got some people breathing down your neck and stuff, but, you know, it's not too bad. It's not too bad. You're enduring the worst of it. And Jeremiah's saying the worst is you have to come. Don't believe you've got well, I mean, that's the that's the foolishness of, of Jeremiah's message and, and what the I mean, at least what the world would see as foolishness of Jeremiah. What do you mean, Jeremiah, that the Lord is going to bring destruction upon his own city, Jerusalem, upon his own temple? How could he do that, Jeremiah? You're wrong. That's that's foolish. And yet there truly is the wisdom of God that comes through in in bringing this destruction. But not only that, because I'm, I'm so glad you connected it to that first Corinthians one passage, because that's I mean, it sounds like Paul's echoing at least probably from other places as well in the Old Testament. But but it sounds like he's echoing here at Jeremiah as well, that this this wisdom of God that puts the wise men of this world to shame is not only seen in the the destruction that leads to repentance, but also then the new life that comes out of that death. You know, that, that God works this way through death into life. Our human wisdom wants things to work the other way or to think it's not all that bad or just to go with what with what sounds good. You know, I mean I'm as as I'm reading there in, in verse eight where where he says, How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? I can imagine that being said in the days of Jeremiah, not long after they found the book of the law, that these false, mm-hmm. these false prophets picked up on this. Hey, look, we, we got the Bible here. We're good again. You know, yep. even if they never read it or, or did any tried you know, at, at all tried to believe it or live according to it. Like, oh, we're good, right? Pastor, I've got the Bible at home. It doesn't matter that I don't go to church. Look, it's there on the <laughs> shelf, pastor. I mean, it, that, it's that kind of the thing. Jeremiah says, that's, that's foolishness. God's going to show you his wisdom and it, it is going to come in destruction, but 
then as, as Paul brings out for us, you know, that it, it's ultimately brought to culmination in, in Christ who, who earned salvation through that cross and, and resurrection as well. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that the very instrument of death is the very thing by which Christ brings forth life, that the tree of death, the tree of the cross is in fact, that becomes because of what Christ does, the life giving tree for the world. Out of death comes life, but only, only because God is and does, is who he says he is and does what, he, what he's come to do, which is to suffer, bleed, and die, to, to take the old and to bring it to naught and to create in us a, a new, not just a new covenant, that's a big thing, the new covenant, um, but the new heart, the clean heart that abides in the new covenant and stretches all the way back to Adam, you know, that create in me a, a clean heart. Only in the midst of this can God bring life out of death and that's the hope of jeremiah because right now man they look dead i mean verse 13 right all of them there's not one good from prophet to to priest the ones who should be are are doing the good things and speaking the word of god even they're dealing falsely so what does israel look like the southern kingdom well when i gather them together there's no grapes on the vine no figs no fig tree in fact for that matter for that matter the the leaves are even withered that's why I was real looks, but out of that, out of that lifeless stomp, God will bring forth life. The, the text ends verses 14 to 17. We get more of this judgment that's, that's coming. You know, you get the, I mean, the doom, right? The Lord has doomed us to perish. He's given us poisoned water to drink. You, you hear the snorting of the horses as the, the Babylonian army is coming. This is what Jeremiah is saying. But, but it's amazing, again, and we've seen this previously in Jeremiah, that it is the Lord who's doing this. The, the Lord's the one who's, as it says in 14, given us poisoned water to drink. The Lord's the one who's sending the serpents in verse 17. Uh, take us into this last, we've got about seven and a half minutes here, Pastor Philippeck, just to, to give us what you need from there and then leave some time to, to wrap up, reflect as well. Sure. So perhaps the latter part, the Lord is sending serpents and adders uh, that cannot be charmed, they shall bite you, uh, is very reminiscent of the wilderness wanderings. Moses lifted up the yeah. serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's stuff that they've gone through before, and that has been a divine judgment that they are familiar with. And this horse and the snorting of the horse from Dan, that is, that is all about Babylon. That is that they are coming. You can hear. They are breathing down your neck. Activity is coming. Feel the horses snort. It's nearly upon you. Don't believe this little piece, piece, the stuff that Hannah and I and the rest of the false prophets are proclaiming to you. It's not peace, peace. It's going to be destruction. It's going to be devastating. The wages of your sin is death. So much so that, you know, you look for peace and there's nothing that has come. And they will see it. They will see it. The, the people will actually see this. And this is the, the part, point of verse 14 here. They're gathered. The people response to all of this, the Lord's judgment will be the Lord's doomed us to perish, a poison water to drink. And why? And notice, because we have sinned. So it's not like it's a big, bad God who out of nowhere is just randomly inflicting pain and suffering on us. No, we have earned this. We have brought this in, into creation, into, into our lives and into all of creation. It's echoing very much in Genesis when the woman and the man stretched out their hand and corrupted creation, thorns and thistles. So this is in their lives, and it is all here, evil and suffering and everything. They are reaping what they have sown. And in all of this, what they have sown is, is the destruction and the Babylon, Babylons and, and the divine judgment. So, yeah, the wages of sin is death. And yet, still, there's this looming of my people in the background here that we're going to soon come upon us again in, in eight and in nine, as you, as you go into this next section, Jeremiah is going to grieve for the people as God is grieving for the people. And that's the cool thing about that, that my people focus. It has that double fact of the frustration of God. So right now you have a God who is watching and looking and having to execute his judgment upon an unrepentant people. You who have a God who is, is lamenting and mourning that this, this is what is going to happen, and they refuse to return. So God is, God is suffering in the midst of all of this. He is, he is watching his people. And, and, the, and the, hope, the real cool thought of this is, with my people as we continue to connect this through the book of Jeremiah, is the God who is suffering and lamenting right now and in anguish over his people and just desires that they would turn to him and live, is ultimately the God who will suffer even more for his people in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Like in the latter days, when all of this judgment has passed 
there will be a righteous branch and that righteous branch will bring life out of death, but only by dying there on the cross so that he may bring the fruits of life and salvation, that the cross might become the vine but that gives life to the world. And by cross, of course, I mean Christ on the cross, not just the cross itself. The cross is an instrument of death, but the one who hangs on the cross in holy love and joy for you is for the life of the world. I want to I want to dwell a little bit on verse seventeen in in connection because I think that helps to tie some of these things together. You mentioned what was going through my mind in verse seventeen. This matter of the Lord sending serpents, adders among His people recalls mm-hmm. the wilderness wanderings in, yeah. in Numbers chapter twenty one with the the episode of the bronze snake that gets lifted up. And I you know here in verse seventeen, Jeremiah says these adders they can't be charmed. And and you know think of how King Zedekiah. Well, and I suppose not just King Zedekiah, but but all the kings after Josiah really you know in one way or another they try to get around babylon you know i'm not going to pay him tribute and and it just doesn't work Uh, these adders are coming they can't be charmed they will bite you says the lord and and that's where jeremiah ends but but with that my people from previously in this text and how it, it will continue in the book of jeremiah it's it's like jeremiah and the lord want the people who are listening to to connect these dots to open up that book of the law to take a look yeah. at what's in there and say okay we can't charm babylon they're going to defeat us we will suffer under their hands what's the solution well, it's the one that the Lord provides. He lifts up the snake on the pole, which, as you said, there's Christ on the cross. That's how Jesus preaches yeah. that text. We've got about two and a half minutes to wrap things up, Pastor Philpeck. Yeah, so this is a huge warning to Israel for their idolatry, that to fear, love, and trust in, to look to something or someone else for good, for support, for care, to get rid of your worries, to anything and everything, for rain, for good weather, for good fortune, whatever the case may be, to do that is a way that leads to death. It leads to the divine judgment, to the cutting down, and the, to the withering of the tree, and the cutting down of the tree. It leads to idolatry, the broken relationships between the bridegroom God and his people, who are adulterous and idolatry, it serves as a warning to them. It serves as a warning to us because we love to look for anything and everything that will make us happy or comfort us and things like that in this world. And serves as a way for us to, by the word of the Lord, hear his calling, by the grace of the spirit, turn to him and recognize that chief of sinners, though I be Jesus still sheds his blood for me. He died that I actually might live, that 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 life-giving tree of the cross might become the very thing that gives me life, that there is life in death, and that in the last days when that trumpet sounds, he will take me by the hand and say, Arise and come with me, my beautiful one, my bride. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more mourning, sorrow, pain. God will dwell in our midst. He will be our God and we his people. But all of that. Because of the God who continues to suffer with his people, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to the extent that this Jesus will suffer all things, even death upon the cross. God will suffer for you. He, he will join you in the flesh, only that you may join him in your flesh in eternity. Pastor Adam Filipek is the pastor at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us today with Jeremiah 8, verses 4 to 17. Pastor Filipek, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah, comments, thoughts on the series as a whole, please get in touch with us. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org, or you can download the new KFUO app and use the open mic feature there to send up to a 60-second message to give us your comments, your questions, your feedback. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.